Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu anasalli ala rasulik al-kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet. May peace be upon him. So continuing uh, where we left off, we are <coughs> now uh, going further into this part two. We spent a lot of time yesterday speaking about Bani Israel, trying to identify who or what is Israel. Another point to think about about modern Judaism is this, uh, when we speak of Israel in modern Judaism, it's a mixture of, or a conglomeration of, of multiple things. Uh, as you and I know, one reference to Israel refers to that physical polity that, that is in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and for a lot of Jews, Israel also refers to the entire population of Jews. In the same way that in Christianity, uh, when they're using the word the church, the church can be referring to this structure that is from God through the Pope and then across, across Catholicism, or it could be referring to the whole population of Christians in the way we use the term Ummah. And, and so, so Israel, when we're speaking in this context, like I said, ultimately, who are the children of Israel? We, we might say that they were uh, Muslims of the time of Musa alayhi salam, or uh, that they are pre-Jews or that they're Jews and such. And I'm suggesting the, the, the easiest term is to speak of the children of Israel as the children of Israel. Now, we also have in Surah Al-Isra, Surah 17, that the children of Israel are going to go through rises and falls and such, and will also have these phases of corruption. Uh, and so it is fair to assume or fair to interpret that there are contemporary populations that would be uh, considering themselves being addressed when the Quran is saying, Ya Bani Israel. And we'll touch on some of those things uh, as, as we get to them. But let's jump right into uh, looking further into, or just this first line. And so can you nod if you can see the Quran on your screen? Yeah, okay, very good. And, and the chat box is open, yeah? Yeah, okay. So, so what do we have here once again? Ya Bani Israel, so O children of Israel, children of Israel. Uh, we have in the course of the next six or so ayahs, we have command after command after command after command, okay? Uh, and we discussed yesterday also, well, are those commands to me? And the argument that I'm making is I do not consider myself to be part of the children of Israel. Therefore, even those these even though these sound like they could be commands for me, they're not commands for me. So remember the favor I favored you with. It, that sounds like it could be a command to me. Fulfill uh, 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 fulfill my pact with you. That sounds like a command that it could be for me. I will fill, fulfill uh, oh fulfill your pact with me. I will fill my pact with you. Be afraid of only me. So they sound like they could be, but the argument I'm making is that we are being addressed indirectly. As though, let's say, you know, I wanted to say to, to Suleiman, okay, Suleiman, make sure you work hard, right? And I'm saying it out loud so that everyone else gets the message too, uh, that, uh, that the people need to work hard, but I'm specifically directing it to, to, to Suleiman. So, but let's look at what's being stated. <laughs> Remember the favor I favored you with, fulfill my pact with you. 
The details of the favorites we're going to talk about uh, uh, when we get to the next subsection, starting from Ayah 47. But let's look at the terms of this pact that the children of Israel has had with Allah And so this is Ayah 83 of the same surah. And let's, let's uh, observe what we can about the terms of this pact, this commitment that they made. Okay. What if, remember we said what if is an indication that we're going to have a historical reference, literally translates as and when. And so the literal meaning is and when. The, the, the interpretive meaning would be take a lesson from this uh, event from the past. Okay. When we took so when we took a pact with the children of Israel. Okay. And now look at the terms of the pact. Okay. So do not worship anyone except for Allah. Okay. That makes sense as the first instruction. And then what's interesting is the rest of the pact. Okay. Be good to your parents. Be good to relatives, to orphans, and to the needy. And speak well to everybody. And then after that, establish prayer and give the zakah. You know, iqam salah wa ita zakah. And so, so consider this point. Uh, so are these the Ten Commandments? No, these are different than the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, but consider that before speaking about prayer and, and zakah, it's be upright in your conduct with people. Now, if you think of the three commands we've had so far, the first one be the abd of your rub, right? The second one, do not knowingly make rivals to Allah. And the third one is give good news to those who do right, such and such and such. They will have gardens beneath which rivers flow. And so, so it still parallels what we've also been given. It also parallels what the Prophet, peace be upon him, was delivering in their chronological order to uh, the, the people of, of Mecca, where so much of the revelations were about the Quran, were about the Quran, were about fairness in terms of trade, um, or about Iman, Iman, Iman in your relationship with Allah, Iman regarding the Day of Judgment, <coughs> so and so on. And then prayer doesn't come in until just about the end of Mecca, when the Prophet goes on the night journey. And so, so this is a, a point to, to think about. <clears throat> so, so repeating the last 10 seconds, I'm saying essentially that the first command in, or the first term of the pact is worship no one but Allah. And then be good to people, give, be good to people, be good to people. And then establish prayer and, and give the, the zakah. And, and then and what does it say at the end? You turned away except for a few of you refusing. And there are a few more terms. Do not shed each other's blood or evict each other out of their houses. And you also confirm this too. So that I just wanted you to get a taste of the pact that they made with Allah. And so let's go back to Ayah 40. So, O children of Israel, remember the favor I favored you with and fulfill your pact with me. I will fulfill my pact with you. Okay. Now, like I said, we will discuss the favors, but look at this last line. Be terrorized of me. 
Now, what else is interesting in, and this is, a, a, so if you compare and contrast the uh, monotheism of Islam uh, with the monotheism of Judaism and the monotheism of Christianity, the monotheism of Islam seems very similar, if not identical, to the monotheism of Judaism. And as you and I know, the monotheism of Islam doesn't match the monotheism of Christianity, right? That's a trinity. But another point to consider is the attributes of Allah. The attributes of Allah in Islam seem to be closer to the attributes of God in Christianity than to Judaism. So see what I'm saying? The monotheism uh, of Islam is more like the monotheism of Christianity, but the attributes of Allah, I'm sorry, the monotheism of Islam is more like the monotheism of, of Judaism. But the attributes of Allah are more like Christianity. Okay, so not purple, not lavender. Let's make it something more official, like the color of Islam. Okay, so so here we're saying oneness is sort of like Judaism. Attributes is more like Christianity. And so what am I saying here? When you read through the Torah, the depiction of God in the Torah is very much focused on power and, and domination. And I mentioned this to you and to many of you in previous classes. I had a student, I mean, he was essentially my age, but, but um, a student in class, and we were going through the Quran. And he was raised Jewish, he was raised in a Jewish household that focuses a lot on Jewish education. And when he opened the Quran and he saw all the references to Rahmah, that, that literally made tears come out of his eyes. Yeah. Because he was so frequently taught that God is wrath. Yeah. And here is Rahmah, Rahmah, Rahmah. And the texts of the Quran seem to be cons consistent with it. For example, where Allah Ta'ala says he's going to reward you according to the best of your deeds and such. And so mashallah, he became Muslim. Uh, but the point is that uh, when, we're, when the children of Israel are being told, be terrorized by me, that is being consi consistent with their text. And so let's go back to what we have here. I gotta figure out a way to do a split screen because I know that's an option here. But uh, until then, so back to this. So Omar, I have a question. Yes. So uh, in when um, you said in Torah, they said it's about the wrath? Yeah. Okay. So so I mean, because you know, Allah SWT give them practically a lot of Rahmah, the prophets come from one after another. So, so that's the interesting thing, that <clears throat> they're given, children of Israel are given a life of miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle, but the rules they were given were super strict. And the relationship with Allah was super strict. Whereas the dunya that we're given has very few miracles, and tremendous struggle, and the relationship with Allah is one of Rahmah. So the balance seems still uh, seems to work. Does it make sense? Yeah. Thanks. Good.
Okay, important question. So another point to think about is, is the incentive that Allah Ta'ala is giving. Okay. So what's being said here? I favored you. Remember the favors. Okay. And so now do your job. And then in return, I will do mine and fear me. So it's starting out, you know, we speak about the carrot and the stick. And so what's the metaphor of the carrot and the stick? That if you want someone to do something, either you can lure them with the carrot, you can give them an incentive, do this and to get the reward. Or you can use, you know, daisy parent approach, you can use the stick and, and it's the threat of, of, of punishment. And so it's starting out with the carrot. Remember the favor I favored you with. And then those are start gonna get itemized um, as we get into the next subsection. And then it's ending with the stick. And so, so this is what we have in between. You know, fulfill your commitments, I'll fulfill mine. And now we get into the detailed commands. Number one, believe in what I have sent down, confirming that is already with you. Which is what? It's believe in the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. Good. Confirming what is already with you. This is understood both ways, that the Quran is confirming the truth of the Torah, right? In our belief in their original forms, all the previous texts, whatever we have of them, uh, are the message, the same message and such. And then we had the conversation yesterday that it may be that the Torah is actually still preserved as opposed to, you know, the, 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 the diacritics and such. And then... Uh, and so that's one way, as well as the other way that this is commonly read is that your book is confirming the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. So the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, are confirming the truth of your book. Your book is also confirming him. Okay. And so, uh, was it in this class? No, it was in Adnan's class, whether we, uh, uh, we spoke about uh, Ahmad Didat, and so Ahmadi Dot, I remember in one of his lectures, says the whole foundation of all of his preaching was Deuteronomy 1818. I think it was Deuteronomy 1818, which is the passage that, you know, God is going to bring a paraclete, a comforter. And then, then Ahmadi Dot was arguing that that's Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, whereas in Christianity it's understood to mean um, Jesus, alayhi salam, and then he argues why. But the point is that uh, you should be uh, Deuteronomy 11.11. Okay, uh, you should be confirmed, uh, this is confirming what you have. Do not be the first to disbelieve in it. So one of the points, one of the questions raised yesterday was why is there so much focus on the Jews here and in this text? And we said that in Medina, according to our sources, in Medina, there's this population of Jews that were looking for where their Messiah was going to appear according to their texts. And it was a certain type of land, a certain type of palm trees, and then they arrive at this place in the end, and according to our sources, you know, they believe, okay, we found the location. And then when the prophet, peace be upon him, was born in Mecca, then there were rabbis who came down during the time of his birth, and then also came down uh, to, to visit him, to test him uh, when he started claiming to be uh, uh, the prophet. And so what's the argument here? That of all the people, you should be the first to believe in this. Do not be the first to reject it. And then taking it a step further, 
don't sell off my ayat for a small gain. And how does this happen in this context? It's that when people are recognizing that Muhammad is the final prophet, peace be upon him, they are risking losing their status. So from a dunya perspective, it's in their best interest to negate the prophethood of the prophet, peace be upon him. This is a common issue with preachers today, right? If you have a following and if your livelihood, meaning your income, whether we're speaking of something as simple as food on your table or your whole lifestyle, if it's dependent upon your following, then the risk is that you're going to say what they need to hear, what they want to hear, as opposed to what they need to hear. And, and so for some crowds, it means, are you going to talk about our, our happy things, happy things, happy things, God loves you, everything's wonderful, you can feel good about yourself, right? Or in other crowds, are you going to hear about our unhappy things? This is the might of Allah, right? Those types of things. So I pressed a button on my... Okay, I think we're fine. Okay. And then we shift. Wa fattakun. Have taqwa of me. Okay. Now, if we put ayah 40 and 41 together, what are we being told if we were children of Israel? Ayah 40, it's saying, practice your belief. And ayah 41, it's complete your belief with Muhammad and the Quran, peace be upon him. And we have this evolution also taking place between the, in their relationship with Allah. Ayah 40, fear me, be terrorized by me. And then that is getting replaced in ayah 41 with have taqwa of me. So you see what's happening? I have 40. Fulfill what you are claiming to believe in. And now what you're claiming to believe in is this final prophet. Embrace this as well. Now, <clears throat> to whom specifically is Allah Ta'ala speaking in this whole subsection? I have 40 to 46 is the subsection we're in right now. To whom is he speaking? He's speaking primarily to their scholars and leaders. Because who would this apply to? Do not excel off my signs. Okay, that's not going to apply to the laity among the children of Israel. That's going to apply to their teachers, their scholars. And so think about when we're speaking of the prophet's teaching, peace be upon him, that the scholars are the inheritors of the prophet, of the prophets, peace be upon them. What are we saying? One is that, is that they are taking on the responsibility of continuing his mission, which is to call people to Allah, right? to give them uh, good news about, about, the, uh, uh, about paradise and warning about the day of judgment. And so the scholars are embracing a much higher level of responsibility. They are being literally the shepherds of, of the population. And so in the case of this population, Allah is speaking to them first. Before getting into speaking to the laity, the, 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 the common members of the community. So, <clears throat> What else are they being told? Do not mix truth with falsehood. Don't hide the truth knowingly. And here's a subtle point that I think is really fascinating. Here it's translated as to mix. What does talbisu mean, literally? Anybody? To wear, exactly. Do not dress the truth 
with falsehood. So here we have also something about the nature of falsehood. That the most effective falsehood is actually carrying truth in its kernel. But then it's lies. I mean, this, I mean, we all understand this. this is how politicians operate, right? Some politicians are just straight up liars. But more often than not, they're spinning the data or they're spinning the, the news story to, to whatever it is they want to say, right? I didn't actually say that you should inject yourself with, with Lysol and, and such. I was just being sarcastic to test you, you know? Uh, and so that's how, how a lot of these things uh, operate. But what is the importance here? I have 41, they're being told to embrace the prophet. He's going to be the first to embrace him. And what is it that they would use as a tool to prevent believing in him? Hiding the truth. Good. And I think all of us understand, just from a simple dean perspective, how truth is centrally important in, in, in everything, right? If truth is, is out the window, then everything else is going to fall apart. Good. And also do not conceal the truth knowingly. So let's look at another ayah. Jumping much, much, much further, which this will be like probably like class number four, where when we would get to it. The people, the 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 scholars among the children of Israel in Medina. How clear was it to them that the prophet peace be upon him was the prophet? It says those to whom we gave the scripture, meaning the previous population. This would be the Jews of Medina. Uh, uh, they know him, meaning they know the prophet, peace be upon him, or you can also understand this to mean they know the kitab, the Quran, okay? as well as they know their own sons. They recognize him. Where is it? Uh, okay. That's how clear it is. Imagine you're on Hajj, okay? and I mean, not today, but I mean, in previous years. And there's 3 million, 5 million people there. Okay. And you're with your family, but then everyone gets lost. Good. The second you see someone who looks like your child, you're going to look, okay, no, this is not my child. You're going to find another kid, no, this is not my child. But when you see your child, you're going to recognize your child. We're saying this is how clear it was to that generation, that the prophet, peace be upon him, was the prophet. So then here's a question building upon what we discussed yesterday. And part of the reason I'm asking these questions is I can look in your faces how totally worn out you are from fasting. But anyway, so, so looking at uh, yesterday's discussion, uh, suppose you have a scholar of Judaism. Do you think a contemporary scholar of Judaism is going to recognize the prophet, peace upon him, as the prophet? Yes or no? Why or why not? What do you think? So essentially, I'm saying a rabbi. Okay. Any thoughts? Iqbal says no. Anyone else? Abdullah says no. No, no, no. Getting a lot of no's. And I think perhaps my, my style of questioning also gave that impression. No. Sharik says no. May depend on the person. Fair. That's totally a moment answer, mashallah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, if they studied it enough in detail. Nice. Okay. So, so every once in a while, if you do some searching on YouTube, you'll find this one rabbi who says, yes, this is exactly referring to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. I've even had uh, a hunt. The question was, uh, at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, the Quran is saying that their scholars, the rabbis of Medina, 
recognize the prophet, peace be upon him, as clearly to them as recognizing their own sons, that this is obviously him. It's not even a question. But uh, the question is, suppose we have a rabbi today, you know, a scholar of Judaism today, would they recognize the prophet, peace be upon him? And my suggestion is no, they would not. Nevertheless, I've had students who are, who are advancing their studies of, of Judaism who've even said to me that if in, in one of the classes we went through the biography of the prophet, peace be upon him, and who even argued that Muhammad, peace be upon him, ex is exactly like a Hebrew prophet. It is exactly his story is exactly the story of the prophets in, in, in the, the, the Hebrew Bible. And they said Jesus is the exception. Jesus, uh, his story doesn't fit, but Muhammad fits perfectly. Okay. And this was also what was said to the prophet, peace be upon him, when, uh, when he goes to Waraka after receiving the first revelations. And what does Waraka say? Uh, he's saying, namos, namos, which took me a long time to find what this was, but this is referring in Greek to the law of Moses. And Waraka is saying that, yeah, you have exactly the same model that... Um, you fit the exact same model or mold that Moses, peace be upon him, had. Okay, okay. so so again, so so the argument I'm suggesting, and this goes back to our discussion yesterday, that uh, uh, a modern scholar uh, and practitioner of Judaism or Christianity, I don't know how quickly or uh, uh, they would recognize the prophet peace on him as the prophet. I could be completely wrong. Maybe it's completely obvious. Uh, and so Allah knows what's in people's hearts. So a few more points. We're already at 525. So where to go? Uh, right over here. So do not mix truth with falsehood. Do not knowingly hide the truth. And then after that, establish salah and give the zakah. And do ruku with those people who do ruku. And so there's two points to consider here. That what seems to be the practice, the, the religious practice of, of, of the, the Jews of Medina, in terms of their prayer, it seems to be similar to what we see of Jews today, which is stopping short of ruku. Good. That's one way to read this. Another, what are they being told? Become part of the ummah. When they're being told, do ruku with those people who do ruku, then they're being told, all right, now join the ummah that is here, the ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him. So remember when we were discussing in the first, the, the first course that what is Islam, especially what is Sunni Islam, it's the Prophet in the Quran, peace be upon him, and the Sahaba, and the legacy of scholars and the ummah itself. And so I can't just say la ilaha illallah, and consider myself Muslim, I also have to have Muhammad Rasulullah. But then my practice of Islam includes the Sahaba as well as the Ummah itself. And that's what they're being called to do. To join the Ummah. Let's stop right here. And especially because I, I look like, a, it feels like I'm talking to a room full of zombies. But Alhamdulillah, you still look more active in life, full of life than my undergrads. Anyway, so uh, let, me, let me open the floor to to questions in inshallah. So we're gonna do the stop to share this. Oh, lots of stuff in the chat. Let's take a look. Sammy, uh, 625, are you just telling me what time it is? <laughs> uh, 
Oh, okay, okay, because it's 525 for, for, for you, or 525 for me. When did the Muslims of Bani Israel start being called Jews? That's a good question. So, so the term Yahud um, is definitely being used at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And part of the question is, when does Judaism start becoming Judaism? And so, uh, as mentioned in the class yesterday, when I talked to rabbis about this, some say that the children of Israel are the pre-Jews or the proto-Jews, and some will say they're the original Jews. Uh, uh, but if we replace the term Jews with Hebrews, then it's easier to, to make sense that this is a, a nation of Hebrews, that is their, their uh, ethnicity, then it seems like it starts happening, uh, if not in the generation of Musa alayhi salam, in the way we would speak of Arabs as Arabs. And then there, the, 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 the term continues. And so a, a rabbi, uh, I had a conversation with a rabbi about, about a year ago, uh, last summer, asking him, okay, can you explain to me, can you give me the details about anti-Semitism? Not the obvious stuff, but things that people may not realize. And one point he made, which was really interesting, he says, is that the Jews are and are not a religion, a tribe, and an ethnicity. And so anti-Semitism usually lands in one uh, or more of those three. And so, so the point I'm making here in our context is that uh, for us, the way we think of Islam, we think of it, whether it's our core identity or not, uh, we still speak of okay, being Arab or being Desi as another dimension of, of our identity. Whereas with many, many Jews, it's, you know, to be Jewish is to be part of this tribe or to be part of this ethnicity or to be following this, this uh, uh, religion. Um, and so it's harder to answer that question in terms of the history of Judaism. When, does, when did the Jews really start becoming Jews? Because uh, for some, it's inseparable. A sort of example of this is being Pakistani. That for most of the Pakistanis, you can't separate being Pakistani from being Muslim. Of course, all the Indians are like, eh, right? But the point is that, uh, that for, for many Pakistanis, that is the psychology. The other is Pakistani Christians, the others there's Pakistani Hindus and such as Pakistani Sikhs. But for, for many Pakistanis, it's- yeah, Come on by destiny, okay? Just to make yeah. sure you know, Pakistan and Pakistanis are governed by destiny. Okay, and we won't discuss if that destiny is positive or negative. <laughs> anyway. But uh, going back to the serious stuff, uh, Omar, the ayah about to not be uh, uh, amongst the first to disbelieve, is that not more of a prophecy also, like Allah SWT is already translating what's in their heart? Well, I think that's already what's been taking place, and it could be mm -hmm. a prophecy as well. So when, does, when do these parts of Surah Al-Baqarah come down? Uh, somewhat shortly before the Battle of Badr. So we're saying six months, according to some, the largest will be 18 months after the Hijrah. And so, so what is also happening? The Prophet, peace be upon him, when he would pray, when he was in Mecca and he was making his prayers, like if you were to imagine this is the Kaaba, okay, he would be facing the south wall of the Kaaba. Okay? Mm -hmm. And what does this allow? He's facing both the Haram in, in, in Mecca as well as the Haram in Jerusalem, right? He's facing both. When he's in Medina, now he has to face one or the other. And so at first, he's not only facing Jerusalem, he's also praying among the, the, the Jews of Medina. 
And, and part of the way that's understood is to say that it's, uh, he's trying to put himself in that community so they see he is their prophet. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be the case all that often that people are respecting him uh, any differently than you know, Jews at the time of Isa al-Islam were, 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 were uh, 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 accepting him. Uh, but it could be a prophecy uh, as well. Yeah, I think it works. Could these verses directed towards the Bani Israel also be directed towards modern-day Christians and Jews? Uh, the point I'm going to suggest is that they can give us insights, uh, but the term that I think is most accurate in using, in referring to Jews and Christians of generations after the Prophet, peace be upon them, is people of the book, Ahl al-Kitab. That, uh, I think, is the only one that seems to work consistently. Because even, even like we just illustrated, do common Jewish scholars recognize the prophet, peace be upon him, as the prophet? Uh, I'm skeptical to think that, that, the, that the answer to that is yes. And that I would trace to curriculum. Uh, uh, but I'm not negating the possibility of using this as source material, but if you think of yesterday's discussion, I'm sort of arguing against that. Uh, some historians say Judaism did not begin with HZ. What's, uh, I don't know who HZ is. Uh, Musa, but peace be upon Oh, Hazrat Musa, peace be upon him, but rather when the Babylonians conquered the Jews because that's when they began uh, recording the Torah and paper. Yeah, I think uh, Musa, that's a, it's a fair uh, reading of, of history. The, the history of, of the Jews in Judaism is not nearly as simple and clean. And by clean, I mean easy to figure out uh, as is the history of Islam. And the history of Islam is also interesting because it literally went from prophet, peace be upon him, to continuous empires. Christianity, that didn't even happen. You have the generation of Jesus, peace be upon him. They were persecuted population by, by the Romans for, for a long time. There were small scattered communities uh, uh, by St. Paul. And then uh, you have Constantine and such. So do we believe in the Islamic perspective the Bani Israel actually got a lot more favors and less mercy? And if it is, why wouldn't Allah's mercy be the same for everyone throughout time? So... So one of the points we'll be discussing when we get to around Ayah 48 is that the children of Israel were favored. And what we'll see that they're going to be told is you're being given everything of dunya literally without any effort, but you have to earn your akhirah. Now, if you really think about it, that's also how Allah speaks about us in the sense that your risk is already set. You have to earn your akhirah. And there's a teaching in our sources attributed to Jesus, peace be upon him, where he says, okay, look at all these people. They're working so hard for this world, which is already provided for them. And they're not even working hard for the next world, which is what they have to earn. But the difference is that they seem to be given what in our language would be miracle upon miracle upon miracle uh, uh, in answering uh, uh, Asma's question. And so thus they had a higher standard to, to, to fulfill. Uh, let's see. Oh, also, could we define uh, Bani Israel as the people that follow the Old Testament, which both Jews and, and varying Christians follow? So the answer, again, I would say is possibly yes. So one subtle uh, but def difference is that Christians have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jews, modern Jews, will have the Hebrew Bible, which is mostly the same books that the Old Testament has, but in different order. And, and so... So naturally, Jews are not going to have an, uh, call it the Old Testament because the New Testament is Jesus, uh, peace be upon him. Uh, we can use them again, I think, for insights. But I don't know what those insights give us. Now, another way to think about this is 
if you learned all of Islamic history, Jim, what does that tell you about contemporary Muslims? I think it gives you some insights, but I don't know how much it teaches you. Or let's say you mastered the Quran, whatever that means. How, what does that tell you about contemporary Muslims? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it gives you insights, but that would also relate to how much does do contemporary Muslims actually follow and practice the, the Quran. So I'm saying all these are sources that can give us insights into the population, but none of this would be definitive. Uh, when you mentioned that they are told to be part of the Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him, you were referring to the Ummah of Islam at the time since Musa, peace be upon him, was sent, not Prophet Muhammad. No, I'm speaking, so, so these ayahs are taking place in the year 620, 623. So, so it's the Jews of Medina who are being told to embrace Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Important question, important clarification. Uh, let's see, what is the subjective lesson we indirectly should be taking from these commands? I mean, the short answer I would suggest is, uh, is here's the tradition that you claim to practice. We call it Islam. Practice it. Okay. That's, that's essentially the lesson that's being given. Practice it with integrity. Practice it with the Ummah. Right. Uh, when did the Muslims, okay, we answered that. Uh, Musab, uh, but didn't you say Allah sealed their hearts before? That's why they refused to believe in the Prophet, peace be upon him. There, uh, that's a harder uh, point to argue. If we're speaking from the perspective of Allah as the author of everything, sure, everything's decided. If we're speaking from on the ground, you know, people have their hearts. There are some among the, the Jews of Medina who embrace the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, often we share the story of Abdullah bin Salam. Who, who personally comes to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and, and tests him and then embraces his message. Um, do you think these verses apply to today's Muslim scholars? Let's wait until tomorrow, and then, then we'll have some, some, some fun with that, inshallah. Uh, other questions that I may have missed from early on. Do we know whether the original Torah depicted God as wrath? That, I don't know that we can actually figure it out, but the common interpretation of, and the depiction of God is that he's at this mountain and there's all these lightning bolts, you know, flashing down and such. And he, the language is that he is a jealous God, but jealous doesn't mean like envious. It's that, you know, he's very, very strict in, in his uh, expectations of, of the people. Uh, why do they use the word covenant, Musab, uh, as opposed to what word? So the word mithak in Arabic is sort of like a pact. That's the same word that's used that the prophet, peace be upon him, in, in the, the so-called constitution of Medina. It's a pact with, with the Jewish tribes. Uh, do you think that the verse, the, the verse of the Torah as we see today as the original verses sent down to Musa, peace be upon him, is all but changed? Depends upon which Jews we ask. Uh, again, Reformed Jews more often seem to say that it's been rewritten and rewritten. And Orthodox Jews seem to be of the, of the, of the belief that it's still the same text uh, uh, unchanged. Um, and a question that's often posed, <clears throat> which makes for fun discussion within Judaism, is that, uh, so, so the five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, although the Hebrew names are different. And what's happening in Deuteronomy is that Musa, peace be upon him, is leading his people. So Genesis is started from creation, goes up to about Musa al-Islam, Exodus is now you have Musa alayhi salam, peace be upon him, leaving the Pharaoh, taking his people away from the Pharaoh. And the whole journey is to get to the, the, the Holy Land, you know, the promised land, meaning Jerusalem. And, and then Musa, peace be upon him, dies before getting there. 
And so in Deuteronomy, Musa dies and he's getting buried. And so then the question is, okay, if this is a revelation to Moses, then how is he dying and getting buried? And, and that's, you, there's interesting discussion among Jews about that, that some are saying it as prophecy and others saying, haha, this is proof that it's not authentic. Why is current Jewish understanding so much different than what we would expect as old Muslims? Uh, Basir, I don't quite understand the question. If I can ask you to expand on that. Um, uh, <clears throat> I had a chance to listen to our rabbi came to our mosque on uh, Ibrahim uh, day and uh, we had a Christian, uh, I, I think she was uh, a minister or something, uh, and Jewish rabbi. And we're talking about uh, Ibrahim, peace be upon him, and uh, the, the understanding of uh, Judaism about uh, Ibrahim is like uh, like something that we we would never expect. Um, for example, they say that God had uh, misinterpreted, or Ibrahim misinterpreted God's uh, uh, order of killing uh, his son. Uh, and then, I mean, it, it's, it goes into a, a uh, an observation that uh, they they can go to any extent. Uh, that we, we we don't even think about going? Well, uh, I'm guessing my hunch is that was probably uh, not just a reform rabbi, it was probably someone who's really far to the left uh, because uh, uh, Orthodox rabbis sound pretty much like our, like Deobandi Molanas um, in terms of being very, very strict in interpreting the text. And if we're speaking about an interfaith dialogue, more often than not, in the same way, you're probably not going to find a Deobandi Molana uh, at an interfaith dialogue. You're probably not going to as often find an Orthodox rabbi in an interfaith dialogue. But that, that's, uh, that's my suspicion. I'm guessing that's probably not as representative of, of Jewish thought uh, and belief in general, especially because that story, the story of Ibrahim, peace be upon him, sacrificing his son is very, very central in a different way than it is uh, in our tradition. It's called the Akida you know, very much like the word Aqidah, and this is setting up the pact that God makes with the children of Israel uh, later on. Uh, and Abdullah, yeah, you, you've quoted that passage. You just, you probably just type it, you can even cut and paste, right? Yeah, oh, well, going so, back to your, your question uh, about the difference uh, that was making, establishing, uh, establishing a differentiation between favor and mercy. If you accept that uh, this differentiation that uh, favor is different from mercy, would you say that uh, the denial of mercy after showing favor is dependent upon ingratitude? Um, so I'm confused about when we did favor versus mercy. We did do favor versus wage when we were talking about- No, uh, uh, there was a few questions uh, ago. Uh, oh, today? Uh, there was, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay, then um, can, may I ask you to, to uh, repeat or expand on the question? So the question basically uh, gave a feel of uh, a differentiation between favor and mercy, that the Jews were given favors but were being sort of uh, uh, okay, denied yeah. mercy. Mm -hmm. If we accept that uh, dichotomy between favor and mercy, then would we say that denial of mercy after being shown a favor is dependent upon ingratitude? 
So uh, I, I think I understand your question, and I would say yes. So a favor is also a very huge mercy. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And what we're going to see in their evolution is that it's, you know, uh, favors are raining down on them, so to speak. They're not responding with gratitude, but they're still being given favors. And then they start complaining. And still they're given uh, what they're asking for. But then it reaches a point when they start getting rebellious and then it ends. And that seems to be the, the overall arc of, of what will take place in the story. But by the time we get to about I-59, that seems to be essentially what's, what's taking place. So I'd say, yeah, ingratitude would be, would be uh, central to the, the problem here. Of, yeah, because it would, go ahead. it would go back to the, to the opening of the class where uh, we, were, we were talking about how the rules are very strict for the Jews as opposed to somewhat relaxed with us. But would that not be, the rules being strict for the Jews, would it not be a, a manifestation of their own ingratitude? Therefore, the bolts were, the screws were getting tightened? Um, perhaps. Uh, 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 if we speak of, again, if we speak within the Torah's context, uh, moving from Exodus to the rules in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, the rules in Leviticus and Deuteronomy seem from our perspective, ultra strict. Right, a lot of times, you know, I mean, so just a side point, a lot of times in our community, we see the Sharia as being super, super strict, which I really don't think it is from an objective perspective. But then when we, if you were to compare it with the law of the Torah, then Sharia looks super, super easy compared to all, all the particulars. And now keep in mind, the Talmud would be the equivalent of their fiqh. Um, and there, I don't have as, as much knowledge to address how, how all these things play out, but it seems as though the things get much more strict later on in line, uh, which fits your, your uh, hypothesis. Omar, Omar the, the, on the Jewism, is mostly the commands actually is towards that their self-discipline and for their own society. There's no establishment of deen outside of Judaism for them, right? So they're, they're not looking for a kamut deen. They're not looking for something else. So the Sharia is more focused on them, themselves rather than the diversify or diversity, like we have to take the message outside of the Arab world to the non-Arabs to Ajmi oh. and all the other stuff. So, so is that something to be so if, if we If we were to speak to Jews today, I think your reading would be somewhat correct in the sense that Judaism is not today a missionary religion, but it seems it was a missionary tradition in its early, early history, right? Uh, but uh, the way Islam and Christianity today are very much missionary religions, Judaism definitely is not that today. Uh, but I think the argument isn't that, uh, is that all that I think the if you see the the history of the early Judaism is we all depend upon or Bani Israel is all depend upon that you know the survival state. The the majority of their estates is based upon the survival. Well, I mean it's survival uh, after after you know the, going to this process of of rejecting the favors and getting disfavored, then it's wandering, right? To the point that everything is getting lost. And so survival would be there. So from a philosophical perspective, one of the common understandings of Judaism is that it's a story of exile and trying to return to the source. So exile from, from paradise and then exile from, from the Holy Land and then returning there. Uh, uh, but I mean, that's, I don't know how, uh, how mainstream that is, but that's how I've been taught. Mm. 
A common theme of this class has been the relationship between Allah and the creation being primarily of mercenaries, saying that this is not the case in the Torah and the Gospels. I would say um, it is different. It, it can't, we can use the language of mercy, but in the Gospels, the language is more one of love, right? That, you know, he so loved, uh, uh, for God so loved the, uh, everyone that, you know, he gave his only, his only begotten son. Uh, whatever the, the full translation is of John 3.16. Um, and then in, in Judaism, it's more of the story of, of returning to the favors of God. In terms of like the pushback that you find among some Orthodox against the modern Zionist movement is that Israel has to be given to us, which means we have to earn it. And that's often the pushback against, uh, against the, the Zionist movement, which has established the, the, the state of Israel. Could we see the history of Abrahamic religions as two extremes followed by compromise, like the wrathful, jealous God of Judaism uh, as extremely strict Christian religion idea that God loves humans so much he sacrifices his only son, that Islam, the compromise. Uh, I, think, I think at least at some level, Sammy, I think that works. Even if we make the, look at the, make the same point from a different perspective, that Judaism focuses so much on law and Christianity focuses so much on, on purity of faith. And we're sort of saying it's both. Like the equation I often give is in, from a Christian perspective, you have Moses and then it's completed with Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. Uh, whereas in Islam, it's Moses plus Jesus equals Muhammad. Uh, so yeah, sounds like a Sammy question, mashallah. Uh, there's something else in Abdullah's question. Uh, in the God of the Old Testament, the sins seem to be carried over generations. Uh, I think that is unlike the Quran in one way, which is that on the day of judgment, I will be held to account only for me and not anyone else. But from a dunya perspective, all of us are beneficiaries and victims of the legacy that is given to us. And, and so that aspect I think is, is consistent with, with the Old Testament reading, except for that, but if we add to that, that if I'm coming from a family where everybody is upright and, 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 you know, is nurturing and such, more than likely, I am also going to be upright. If I'm coming from a family where everybody's corrupt or they have no faith, then more than likely, I'm not going to have that. Of course, we have exceptions. Ibrahim is the, is the son of Azar, who, who's worshiping idols. And, and Nuh, peace be upon him, is a prophet of God, one of the greatest of all the prophets, and then his son goes astray. So that can also happen, but I'd say odds are that I'm going to be a beneficiary or a victim. If you're familiar with the philosophy of John Rawls, um, oh, I just got bumped off, but so hopefully you can uh, hear me. If you're familiar with the, the philosophy of John Rawls, that's one of the central uh, ideas he has in terms of justice, that that one thing none of us has in control over, which is one of the most influence, uh, influential aspects of life, is we don't have control over the circumstances of our birth. So one person who's born upper class, educated, etc., versus the next person who's born in poverty, more than likely, you're not gonna get out of your social class. And that's part of the whole foundation of his school of, of, of um, philosophy. Uh, let's see, uh, there's one anti-Zionist interpretation, I think by Judith Butler, not mainstream Jewish people are destined for a kind of perpetual wandering, but don't quote me on that. I do believe that that is a common uh, uh, philosophical view uh, among, among many Jews, which would be akin to 
the various philosophical views we have about the about history. So the common view we have about history is that the best of generations is the prophet peace upon him and the companions, and then their descendants, uh, the the tabi'in, and then their descendants, the tabi tabi'in, and then sort of goes downhill from there, with an occasional rise every century, and then it goes down, an occasional rise, and it goes down, but still the overall arc is still it's still going down and down. And, and that would be sort of like the Muslim version of, of that. But in practice, what does that mean? You know, for me in my specific practice of Islam, it could mean that the further centuries I am <clears throat> away from the Prophet, peace be upon him, the harder it is for me to practice my Islam. Could be. Any other questions or thoughts about anything at all? Alrighty. Yeah. Just a one. Yeah. Just reiterating the same point. I mean, if you see the whole history of the Judaism from the time of Hazrat Musa, then you know Nebuchadnezzar, then Hitler, then as as even today, they are always in a survival mode, right? They're always looking to prove themselves or getting oh, out that's of an interesting persecution. Point. So, so I've also had this conversation with, with rabbis and such who, who said that if you look at pretty much all the holidays of Judaism, they're all holidays that are connected with surviving persecution. And so, yeah, it's definitely for in terms of mainstream American Judaism. Uh, the narrative is one that the world is out to destroy us. And we as Jews, we are survivors. Uh, so, so Hanukkah is, is very much related to that. Uh, Purim is very much related to that. Passover is related to that. Um, and then the day of redemption is Yom Kippur. That this is where we get redeemed for, for, for our sins and such. And that uh, I think is a very, very important distinction. If you look at our holidays, what are our holidays? So you have Eid al-Fitr, Eid al-Adha. And what are we observing? Okay, we're observing uh, obedience to Allah. And so that's sort of central to our narrative. And this is also going to be a point that we're going to make when we get to the next subsection, starting from about IF 47, 48, is, is how do we speak about our historical narrative versus how do Jews speak about their historical narrative? And it's consistent uh, with what you're saying, uh, Dr. Malahad. Any other questions? Uh, do you think that um, this whole notion about uh, the gospel being... Um, more about love and Judaism, uh, the notion of God being strict. Uh, it could be uh, a contemporary understanding, um, but if we do look at uh, the blessings of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala um, on on both uh, of these uh, groups, uh, they were humongous. Uh, probably we can't even realize. Um, so maybe at, at those points, they understood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy, you know, as, as being, uh, as he's loving us and that's, therefore he's giving us uh, things to eat in desert and he's helping us survive. But maybe the understanding is different today uh, as far as Judaism uh, about God. So um, I'm going to partially agree with you, but I'm also going to partially suggest, hold on to your question until we finish this whole, uh, this whole section. Um, uh, and revisit your question then, because we're also going to see an evolution even in this story of, of how the characters in this story are looking at things. Any other questions about anything at all? 
All right, let's stop right here. So hopefully your brains can get a rest, inshallah. I don't know how much time all you have until iftar. We still have another hour, hour and a half here. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka na tubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka na tubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka na tubi ilayk. Wa akhir da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah tell everybody well, and we'll continue tomorrow, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.